Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Middleway Mom Reads, where we dig into books to enhance and inform our homeschooling journey. I'm Shannon, a homeschooling mom since 2009 and a student of the Islamic sciences, working toward my bachelor's degree in Islamic sciences from Mishka University. I've been using the Charlotte Mason method since 2016, and I'm hoping that this podcast helps more parents realize the value of the Charlotte Mason method in their homes. So we're starting with the most classic book in the Charlotte Mason series um, called Home Education. It's a six-volume series. We'll work through the book together, inshallah. I'll discuss highlights of the book without the assumption that you have read it yourself. But of course, you would gain more value if you read the book along, along with me. So today we are picking up with a section about uh, the child should be made familiar with natural objects. It is a short section today. If you are following along, we're on page 69. Um, And she just starts saying, an observant child should be put in the way of things worth observing. So we've talked about in a few of the previous sections about this out of door time, um, how much time we should be spending outdoors. And I've kind of added in here some of the fruits of that labor that we that we expect that we should start to see their habit of observation uh, become a bit more keen, their habit of uh, detail, of noticing that one of noticing the details and then also having that detail in their vocabulary uh being able to to describe one tree in comparison to another or one squirrel in comparison to another, one bird in comparison to another. We need to work on that vocabulary. And that's something that comes naturally when you're trying to tell somebody about something that you've been noticing and observing. So this whole section is about bringing kids in front of things that are worthy of being observed. Um, so often we bring kids into parks where every park looks like the the other park, right? Like there's a playground, they all have birch trees or they all have oak trees. And there's just nothing super interesting about one to the other. And granted, this is better than sitting in your living room and never leaving it and so on and so forth. But there are there are grades of of things worth observing. So that's what she's talking about today. Um I don't remember if we covered it before, but I know that in this book, she does encourage um, in another section to go out into the city. If you're living in, you know, in her time, she's talking about London. If you're living in the middle of London, you know, to one of the examples that she gives, I don't think that we covered this yet. So spoiler alert, um, is going to the city in and noticing the displays. So there's something to be said about using what is right in front of you and finding the value of what is there. And she's also encouraging parents to get outside of the city and notice the natural world. She says, but the scraps of information to be picked up in a town are isolated fragments. They do not hang on to anything else, nor come to anything more. The information may be convenient, but no one is the wiser for knowing on which side of the street is Smith's and which turning leads to Thompson's shop. Sorry about that. And when I'm thinking about like these displays in the shop window, there's nothing like if I pay very close attention to the shop window, that teaches me nothing about anything else in life. 
Whereas when I am observing the natural world, all of these things play into one another. Um, there's like this natural connectedness. We'll, we'll notice the, the, you know, I'm looking out this window at a very wintry scene, right? This natural connectedness of the shorter days in the winter. And what does that mean for the living world? So of course, there's the leaves that drop. We see different birds. We see different birds. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, uh, conjecture, I guess, of like, why do birds migrate when they migrate? Um, is it temperature? Is it um, like, how do birds know when to come back to to Minnesota, you know? Um, and one of the one of the theories is uh, that they're able to observe um, like the rivers being being higher farther south. So then you can see that like the snow is melting farther north is just an example. But we see that one thing is all connected to the others. Uh, we have chickens. And so we have noticed in our quails actually right around October, the quails stopped laying eggs. And people always ask, well, is it because it was cold? No, it's not because it was cold. It's because the sun is the 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 length of the day is so short that the birds stop laying eggs um and we had to look up um you know the fertility cycles of cats things that i never knew that i would ever need to know um but they actually go based on the length of days as well and it makes a lot of sense that when the days are very short that females are not going to be as fertile when they're wild animals, right? They're not going to give birth to a brand new baby in the middle of February when it's very, very cold. Um, and the the length of the day is a very good indicator of uh, how cold it's going to be outside. So also she gives some examples of like a smooth pebble that you find in the river versus a rough rock that you find on the mountainside. So that naturally leads to talk of erosion, why is this smooth and why is this one rough? Um, another one is the rings on a twig versus the rings on a branch or the rings on a trunk. And you'll also notice um, the rings are different from one year to the next. And that can indicate drought or it can indicate, um, you know, a, a time of abundance when it comes to rain and sunlight and so on and so forth, where there's more growth or less growth. So we see all of this interconnectedness um, from one thing to the next when we're when we're put in the way of natural observations. In the next section on page 71, she says, it is infinitely well worth the mother's while to take some pains every day to secure in the first place that her children spend hours daily amongst rural and natural objects. And in the second place, to infuse into them, or rather to cherish in them, the love of investigation. And she goes on to talk about because the future of our of our culture, right? The future of humanity is in the hands of scientific men. Again, this was written over a hundred years ago. And we see that this came true, you know, that, you know, we can't say that it, it's a prophecy, but like this, this prediction, this prediction came true. The hands of our culture are in the uh, or I'm sorry, the 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 power essentially of our culture is in the hands of scientific people. 
when we say men here, we're using that in the, you know, mankind, you know, general sense, um, that when we have that, that habit of observation, which I keep talking about, but it's so valuable. Um, you know, one of the really bad habits of our day is we don't pay attention in the first place. One, you know, we, we expect that everybody is going to repeat themselves if we didn't listen to them the first time. This is particularly true when it comes to children that, you know, if you ask them, okay, I need you to get your socks on, get your shoes on and be ready to walk out the door. And then if you ask them, well, what did I just say? Uh, we're leaving. <laughs> right. And then they're getting out the door with, you know, sandals on and there's snow on the ground and whatever, like this, this being able to, to pull your whole attention to something. I mean, you can't, we would pay million, millions of dollars if we could guarantee that we could secure this habit in our children. And when you put them in the way of things worth observing, that it inculcates this um, fairly naturally. She says, in learning true knowledge, they will have learned also their own ignorance in the vastness, the complexity, the mystery of nature. You see, as people get farther into science, um, atheism tends to be a little bit more common. And then in my observation, you know, you can count me wrong if you if you need or want or what have you, but there comes a point where we realize how much we don't know. And there's, again, a reverence for the divine. There's a reverence for this, this is created. There is a creator. Um, there's this phenomenon that I haven't seen it written about formally, but everybody that I talk to that's in, in a place of learning um, has seen this. And it's essentially this, you up until you know about 5% of something. So let's say, you know, my first degree was in IT. Uh, my second degree is in Islamic studies. And so like, I've seen this in myself twice now, where you learn 5% about something and you're like, you know, I'm on the cusp of being an expert in this thing. Like I almost know everything. And then you get past that and you realize I know nothing. I know almost nothing about this, right? Like you get to the point that you realize actually how much is there. And so you, you know what you don't know, or, um, or you can at least recognize there's all of this other stuff that I don't know. And until you get to like 95% of knowledge in that subject, you're like, I'm kind of an idiot about this. I, like, I kind of know nothing. And then you get to like 95 to 99% cause you can never get to a hundred. You're like, I kind of know stuff. <laughs> so we, when we have this true knowledge of our natural world, as we get closer to that 95 and whatever, like I'm making up these numbers, right? Maybe it's 80%. Who knows? Somebody should, you know, do the actual research and come up with something a little bit more solid than what I'm describing. But this, this pattern holds true. And I, I stand firm on this, but when we, when we learn at that very least, like that 6% where we say, wow, there's so much that I don't know. That's where we we want our children to be in a place where they have reverence 
for the natural world, for science and the system that it is, right? Science is our observation of things that happen naturally. That's how science really started, you know, and of course there's like the branch of science where we are, we're inventing things, we're harnessing things, so on and so forth. But really it starts with observation first and foremost. And so if we can at least get our kids to that 6% where they have that reverence for mashallah, when I am seeing the, the patterns in nature of the the migratory patterns and in, in um, not just not just birds, but you know just how this fits into this web of experience of even just this this pinpoint of where I live in the world that inshallah can hold fast to their faith instead of this one in two percent knowledge where now they feel like I you know, you get this attitude, I don't need God to explain things. Yes, you do. One, you know almost nothing. And that's how you can be so arrogant is because you're so ignorant. Um, so really, this is one of the fruits that we hope for, that we hope for uh, with this knowledge as well in putting them into touch with things worth observing, like she says. Um she there's the next the last section actually is uh intimacy with nature makes for personal well-being so again she's talking about the fruits of this labor she says number one they they can follow a scientific conversation and make good decisions so when you know covid is the perfect example of this where are we able to follow a conversation and where are we just like throwing up our hands and saying, okay, I'm going to pick somebody that I trust and I'm just going to run with whatever they tell me to do. And we can see how, how that lands where when people were able to discern information for themselves one, you tend to get people who are a little bit less extreme about things. Um, again, that arrogance that people tend to have is generally from a place of ignorance. Um, not always. Sometimes people are arrogant because they're like, I like, I really am for real an expert on this. I have like 99% knowledge on this. Um, but oftentimes your everyday person, when they're really arrogant about something, it's often that they're pretty ignorant. Um, so they should be able to, inshallah, follow some kind of scientific conversation um, just to maybe they can't contribute to the conversation, but they can follow the conversation. Um, this is a silly example, but I was listening as an audiobook. What was it? It was, um, it was by Neil Degra Degrassi. Yeah, Neil Degrassi Tyson. Um, and it was astrophysics for people in a hurry, I think. And one, there's certain books that I really just have a hard time listening to as an audiobook. Um, this definitely falls into that category. And it was before I realized there's certain audiobooks that I just, it's hard, like I need to read it. I need to see it with my eyes. Um, and like, I, I had a really hard time following along. Like there's just an, an assumption that I already knew a good amount about physics. Um, and I've never taken physics, you know, I am working on my second bachelor's degree and I just, I've never taken physics. It's just kind of how my education has worked for me. That's where things have landed. 
Um, so I'm unable to follow that conversation. So, I mean, they could say like, there's a new thing. There's, you know, black holes and purple holes and pink holes. I'd be like, oh, okay. You know, sure. You know, tell me whatever you think. And, you know, I'm, I'm working to fix that. But inshallah, we can work toward our kids having some ability to at least listen in and follow along. So number two, um, this personal well-being for having this intimacy with the natural world is that they can be interested and not just interesting. And I know that we've talked about this before. I think that it's really important to hone in on this. And this is one of those phrases that I think is mottos, I guess, that's really important as we are raising, especially like the tweens and teens and you know they go through this this time period or phase in their growing up where often our culture is more focused on being interesting and it's it's not cool i guess um i feel like an old lady saying it's not cool to be interested in things. So the the kids who are really interested in birds or chess or Lord of the Rings or whatever, like horses, they're made fun of, right? Like, oh my gosh, you're such a geek about this. No, they're interested in things. And you find when you when you look at people who who live a satisfied and fulfilled life they're interested in things if you're only focused on being interesting then you're it's like you're you're chasing a moving target if i'm interesting right now then when what is interesting to the greater culture changes either i need to change or i'm no longer interesting so it's really important that um, that there is a internal locus of control instead of an external locus of control, and that they hold fast to that. And being able to put them in lots of places where interesting things are happening or interesting things are being talked about, then they can be interested in those things. Um, you know, when we're looking at longevity in the elderly, in um, not just longevity, but quality of life in the elderly, having hobbies, having things that uh, that they're digging into and learning about is is really key to to having a satisfied and fulfilled life, you know, in those later years where the physical aspect is is dwindling. Um, it can also help. So this being interesting um, can also help them to keep out of trouble because this curiosity can keep them busy, right? If they're always digging into how do I buy a horse and how do I ride a horse and how do I take care of a horse and how do I, you know, how much space do they need to live and so on and so forth. Then, you know, all of those Google searches that maybe they're doing is filled with that and not filled with all the other things that we could Google that we should not be Googling. So like I said, this section is a little bit shorter. Um, that wraps up this section on being put in the way of things worth observing. The next section is on out of door geography. So things that we're noticing when we're on these 
on these nature walks. And it can be something small, um, you know, going, walking to the library, walking to the post office, those type of things. Um, but we're going to get kind of get into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of what that looks like. What does it look like to, um, to really hands-on talk about geography? And this isn't like, you find a Pinterest activity and you make some kind of folder with flaps and whatever. This is, you go outside and you say, okay, well, we need to go west. Where does, where's the sun in the afternoon? And is that east or west, north or south? And how can we figure out where is west from here? And just making this really relevant um, you can even talk about, okay, well, we need to go to the library and drop off these books. We want to walk. The library is west of here. So do we want to make that walk in the afternoon or do we want to make that walk in the morning? We, we don't want the sun to be in our eyes, in our face. So this can, this can dictate, um, when we, when we want to do these trips, when we, you know, dictate how our day functions. So that is, that is for next time. Inshallah, we are ending on page 72 for anyone who is following along. Um, as I've stated before, of course, you know, I'm covering uh, quite a bit in the book. We're going quite slow through this, but you will actually gain uh, additional benefit if you purchase the book and read it for yourself. You can find a link to that in the show notes on this podcast or video. If you have any questions, you can contact me at Shannon, that's S-H-A-N-N-E-N, at middlewaymom.com. You can find me as Middle Way Mom on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube as well. Um, and I look forward to, to meeting with you guys again, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.